Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. It's good to be up here. I haven't been here before in this format, and uh, I love the circle. I love the sense of connection. I love the fact that I feel a bit more liberated to be maybe a little more creative, so not sure what I might do this morning. Look out. Um, but it is truly great to be here. My name is Douglas. I love serving here. I always have since the day I walked in this place. I just felt a real peace and a real welcome here and a hunger in the people to know God. And uh, I trust that you continue to cultivate that. One of the amazing things about the Word of God is if you're hungry, or if, you, you know, if you're hungry physically and you eat, you, the more you eat, you get full, right? Now, some people have an unlimited capacity. <laughs> But at some point, even Sizzler's uh, gourmet (laughs) display will wear them out and bring them to the brink of fullness. With the Word of God, it's different. If you don't feel hungry, you eat. And the funny thing is, the more you eat of the Word of God, the more hunger it stirs in you. So I'd really encourage you to continue, even if life is difficult, circumstances are hard, that you come to the Word and you ask the Lord to open up His Word and feed you, because it's not enough to have it in your head. You can have all the Word, the knowledge of the Word in your head, and it will do nothing for you if it does not come into your heart and transform you. And unfortunately, this is a, is a, it's an interesting byproduct of the Enlightenment, um, started around the 1600s, the Age of Reason, Rene Descartes, a philosopher who coined the phrase, I think, therefore I am, it thrust the world into this move toward rationalism and reason as the means to knowledge. But unfortunately, what it did is it shifted away our understanding of what biblical theology was about. It was not about information or putting right ordering of thoughts, but about transformation. People did not come to the Word to be educated. They came to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And hence, we look at this word as something to not look at, but look through to the glory of God and for how it to speak out to us. And you can do this in your home. You don't have to come here to do that. Isn't that great? You don't need me. You've got the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that you don't go seek wise counsel and look at the people of the past who have devoted their lives to understanding this so that you can glean the wisdom and the understanding and the knowledge of some amazing thinkers over 2,000 years that have taken the words of Jesus and tried to repackage it and reword it in ways that their culture would understand in their times and places. So there's nothing new under the sun, or there shouldn't be, when it comes to the Word of God. It's just trying to put it in words and context that we will understand today. And that's been the journey to the Sermon on the Mount. What a remark. Are you guys amazed at just how amazing this sermon is? I hope so. I think the great privilege of teaching is you get to discover depths of things that most of you, just because you've got occupations and times and different things in your life, probably don't get the time and place to discover. But this Sermon on the Mount is such a remarkable piece of work. And you can... Look at it in a couple of ways. Um, Well, you come to it in a couple of ways about just the remarkable structure of this sermon. 
how Jesus begins with the Beatitudes. And as, as you probably discovered, the Beatitudes aren't laws. They're not even codes of conduct. They're, they're actually ways of being. And he's describing a spiritual formation process for those who are poor in spirit, how they come into maturity in the faith. And then he, he presents this brief couple of sayings that tell you what is the outcome of that. It's the goal and the intention of the Christian faith to be light and salt. And then there's that very confronting verse where he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And right there he's hitting at that very thing I began with about you cannot live this in your head. It cannot be walked out behaviorally. It must be pursued to the point where it's getting into the very core of your being. And what does Jesus do? He starts preaching about the ethical and moral standards that are demanded of the Christian who is a disciple that go straight to the heart. Just because you don't commit adultery doesn't mean you're not an adulterer. It just means you haven't had the opportunity. It's about this. In the same way, just because you don't kill someone doesn't mean you don't have hate in your heart. It just means you probably just haven't had the courage to follow through on your convictions. So when Jesus talks about these things, he's trying to get to the things that are poisoning you and others that are in the depths of your being. And then you fall on your knees because you know you cannot overcome what is in you. And you're taken back to the beginning where he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus did not come to make bad people good. He came to give dead people life. And the life comes through the word and the realisation that there is nothing we can do to come into that life except through the blood and body of Jesus Christ. We finished up last... Matt, that was a great message last week. I was still going around in my head. really fed me. Um, I'm so blessed to have you here as part of the team. Matt finished up a section that was on the ethics and moral teachings of um, the Christian faith, but you'll see that righteousness starts to transcend just the boundaries of morality and goes into the cause of our spiritual worship and observances. And this is what Jesus is transitioning into as we look at the text today, which is chapter... It was just going to be on prayer, but um, Matt finished it in verse 48... I think, and I'm picking up this section that starts talking about giving, fasting, and prayer. So when we're looking at the structure, we see that he goes from moralities and ethics into this religious observances and, and continues to expound what it means to be a disciple, how to live honorably before God, how to have your heart in the right disposition before him. And then the, the way he finishes it up, I just want to get this out quickly, he gets to this point where he says there's two ways. Basically, the narrow path and the, the broad path. Build your house on the rock, which is the word, because if you build it on sand, it'll be swept away. There's this, so here's this sermon in its wholeness. It's talking about you can only come in by being poor in spirit. This is the result. This is what's demanded of you. This ought to bring you back to being poor in spirit. And when he finishes it out, he says, you have a choice. If I was going to put it in today's language, I might say my way or the highway. <laughs> it's, a, it's probably a little more serious than that. It's death or life. 
you choose because God has actually done an amazing thing with humans that he's done with no other creature. He's given us the freedom of self-determination. So when God comes to you and reveals himself to you, you can still say no. But, like, I don't, I don't, know, I don't know how you would want to, but there's something about that that anchors us in that that gives us personal responsibility for the choices we make. And one of the wonderful things about the grace of God is realising as you're confronted with the things that Jesus speaks about here is that he's not saying you need to do it by yourself because that's been the problem since the Garden of Eden, (laughs) trying to define life for themselves and do it their own way. He's saying, I'm going to the cross and I'm going to die on the cross for your sin and I'm going to send another helper, the Holy Spirit, and he'll be poured out. And it will enable you to do what you cannot do on your own. I cannot love my enemies in my own strength. Have any of you tried? (laughs) I have this thing in me that wants to do exactly the opposite. But it is the word that speaks to me that causes me to yield. Lord, help me. And the power of the Holy Spirit comes to release this anger toward them and learn how to love because he is indwelling in us. We don't have to cry out for his presence. I know what we mean by that. A longing to experience the tangible manifest presence of God. But in John, the Gospel, he says, if you abide in me, I'll abide in you. If you Love me, you will keep my commands, and my Father and I will come and make our home in you. The God of the universe is saying, if, if you love me, you'll keep my word. Not keep my word and I'll love you. If you love me, this is what you'll do, and this is what we'll do. We'll come and make our home in you. So if you want revival, pick up his word. Go before him and seek his face. And if you're honest in that place, truly honest, I mean, sitting there with your book by yourself going, I don't even understand what this is. I'm bored. I'm tired. I'm weary. This is like, I'm looking like, it's looked like another language. Confessing to that level, saying, I'm not even sure I like what you write. That kind of confession to God and then repenting and saying, Lord, forgive me that my heart is so hard to your word. Help me. So we're in Matthew. I'm going to read through verses 1 to... uh, Chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. But I guess this morning I'm probably just going to focus a little bit on the prayer um, and a little bit about some of the aspects and the way Jesus is presenting this section. So why don't you either read along or listen with me. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. 
But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you that they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask them. There's, as you've discovered, so much that can be unpacked about this scripture, uh, and I'm going to talk a little bit about structure. I'm going to talk a little bit about the difference between the two comparisons that Jesus is making here and kind of come into into prayer. Funny things that stick out for me, for example, is like, who's blowing a trumpet while they're giving? (laughs) Like, I've been in the church 20 years. I've never seen anyone actually do that. So straight away you realise that there's some things going on that we don't necessarily connect with, and this is part of the issue that can be um, a barrier. You think, well, this doesn't even have any relevance to us, but we can blow our trumpet in different ways, can't we? A tweet here, Instagram there. Can I just put this out to you? I've been in places where there's worship going on, and the next thing you know, people got their phones out, and they're taking photos. And they're posting. Can I suggest to you that maybe you might want to think for a moment what you're doing in a place that's supposed to be holy and sacred in their worship and their giving to God? Just a thought. Are we blowing our trumpet? Maybe. Jesus sets up this section here with giving, fasting and praying by firstly bringing forth an indictment about behaviours that are hypocritical. And I find the fact that we have masks on today, it's quite helpful for me. (laughs) Because the word hypocrite means to wear a mask. And I don't know about you, but I've I've found it really quite awkward going out in the shops and you don't need to keep physical distance because the mask by itself (laughs) does, it creates social distance, right? I mean, does everyone feel awkward you're going up, even if you're saying hello to someone you know, and you're just saying, are you happy to see me? Or, like, it's really hard to tell. Like, it's, it causes a barrier. And so you can be hearing the words that are coming out of their mouth, but you don't really know what's, where, the, if they're, where the heart's at. You know, a hypocrite really means to not live consistently with... The, what your convictions or what you believe. It also means to put forth an appearance of religious piety. In other words, you can put on the mask and you can speak all the words and you can sound all good, but in your heart, it really isn't. It isn't what. It isn't reflective of who you are. You're not really doing it for God. You're doing it for other reasons. What does Jesus say? He says. They do it in order to be seen by others. So whatever is driving them, it is certainly not to come into the presence of God and worship him in their acts of giving, prayer and fasting. It's actually that they might be get the approval of others. 
be seen to be holy and righteous, to look good, to be the part. When it comes to prayer, he talks about the same thing. Do not... Um, st- who's standing in the street, by the way, and praying? Anyone? <laughs> good idea. Ah, that's, a, that's quite a courageous thing to do. It's certainly not in my bag of tricks, if you know what I mean. But, you know, we have, uh, you probably, if we scan the, you know, got a, a poll survey of where you've all come from in your church traditions, I would imagine it would be quite a, a range. We'd have probably some high Anglicans, high church people that, you know, dare you say a word in the service, to the all-out Pentecostal, everyone needs to be shouting, otherwise you're not holy. <laughs> you're not godly enough. Well, unfortunately, that can create different perspectives. And so people can be step into a church culture and if it's like the Pentecostal, feel like they have to express themselves loudly, excuse me, in order to belong. Or you come from that background and just love praising and shouting loud and all of a sudden you find no one else is doing it and you are, you're really standing out, right? <laughs> Alistair, I think you know what that's like. Yeah. <laughs> have you noticed though, like, I can't tell the genuineness of your heart. Can I? Like, truly. Or like, where's Chitty? Is he here today? Chitty? No, he's not. Chitty also. Just prayer warrior. But if you're not used to that, you might think that there's something wrong with them. (laughs) That they're doing it for other people or gain approval. (laughs) So when he says, do not do this, he's saying it's to do with the condition of your heart, right? So, don't do it in order to gain the approval of others. He does the same thing with fasting. He says, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. They disfigure their faces in fasting. So, the teaching is really pretty simple, isn't it? I mean, you don't have to be a scholar to understand this. Doing something in order to gain the approval or acceptance or praise of others is to be a hypocrite, and it does not gain the attention of God But worse than that, if you do do it that way, if that is your motive, you cannot expect anything from God. You already have your reward. So he flips it around and says, thus, this is what I want you to do. And this is where I find Jesus, like he's amazing, right? It's a very simple teaching, but there's some really profound things that he puts across because he knows Well, let me ask you. If you know you shouldn't do things for the approval of others, then by rights, you should just tick that box and go, yep, we're all sorted, right? Is everyone doing everything for a pure motive of heart? Purely to seek the love love and adoration of God or for him or for his worship? The reality is no. So to hear the word is not enough. And what Jesus says here is really actually quite profound because he's saying, don't do it this way, do it that way. He's not just saying, don't do it with this motive, do it with that motive, do it this way. And so when it comes to prayer, for example, he's saying, go and remove yourself from all the public places and go into, it's like go into a little closet, hide yourself so no one can see and pray there. Now all of a sudden, In that place, 
you will receive your reward from God because he will see you because God is in the secret place. So we go, okay, well, I understand that. But why is he telling us to go somewhere else? What happens when you go and do things that are hidden? Well, the very thing that's in your heart will be exposed to you, won't it? Just think about it for a moment. If you're doing something for the attention of others and all of a sudden you remove them from the equation, there's no longer your ability to get what you're after if you're not in the vicinity of people who are the bearers of your reward. And the reason we have to do things like this, go into the quiet, remove ourselves from these places, is because actually we're fooled into thinking that we actually know our motives when actually we're the last people sometimes to discover what's going on in it. Jeremiah chapter 17 has this really interesting discussion going on. Jeremiah is talking to, well, the Lord is saying to Jeremiah, cursed, well, see, this is where it's a really interesting discussion because the prophet Jeremiah is speaking the words of the Lord, but then he interjects a question in the middle of it. So that's why this is the word of the Lord. We're going to hear Jeremiah speak in a moment, even though he's speaking these words. <laughs> so I maybe just confused you a little there. <laughs> Thus says the Lord, Cursed is a man who trusts in man and makes his flesh his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Now here comes the opposite to that. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear even when the heat comes. For its leaves remain green and is not anxious for the year, in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. That's the word of the Lord. Now listen to what Jeremiah, he's inquiring of the Lord. He's asking a question. But he begins with this statement, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart, is desperately the heart is deceitful and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah the prophet is hearing what the Lord is saying about those who are blessed and those who are cursed and he's in the midst of a situation where they're on the brink of going into exile. God is bringing judgment. Yet around are people who think they're so pious and holy that they don't have any problem. They think they're the blessed. And God's actually saying, no, they're the cursed. Because they trust in men and they make flesh their strength. And Jeremiah goes, how, how can we possibly know which camp we sit in? Because the heart is deceitful. Christians don't like to hear this these days because, you know, Ezekiel also talks, and Jeremiah, but Ezekiel talks about the Lord giving us a new heart. And that's true. You become born again. There's something that happens that gives you a new heart, one that has the ability to actually receive the word of God and a willingness to want to walk in it. And yet there's something in us. No one really understands the mystery of who we are, but there's this thing that our heart can be deceptive. So I can tell you not to do things for the approval of others, but unless you have a means or a way of putting that to the test, you're never going to find out. Particularly if you're given 
ministry that puts you in the public space. So standing up here. And musicians and preachers alike all are vulnerable to the fact that they can be doing things for the approval and reward of other people to be looked, to be seen, to be good, to be saying the right things, to be singing the right way, to raising their hands at the right time. The more public you are, the more vulnerable you're going to be to this. Now, some people never want to be in the public space, so it's probably not that much of a challenge. <laughs> but if you love the attention of others and you're given platforms, you're in a vulnerable place. Because the motive with which you're driving out to do these things can be all of a sudden consumed with, how did I do? Did I look right? Was I looking worshipful enough? So you can imagine if you're in a Pentecostal setting, if you actually just want to be quiet and still before the Lord, you might be seen to be not spiritual enough or not engaged or don't you feel the presence of the Lord? And so then you change your behaviour because you feel like you need to fit in. And that's disastrous. And part of that's the fault of the community. The inability to allow someone to be who they are and the other person. The expression of diversity in the unity of the faith. The unity is not in the behaviour. The unity is in the spirit. I said the unity is not in your behaviour. So Aaron's behaviour on stage, he expresses worship like jumping and he's just expressive. Me, I'm probably going to sit there, I might do this. <laughs> I might have my hands here. It's just... But you can't stand there and say Aaron is more devoted and I'm not yeah. or I'm more devoted and he's not. You have no way to judge that. Yeah. In fact, I don't even know how to judge that. The only way I can deal with myself is to go into the quiet place. And what happens there is a couple of things. First, if, if I'm longing for the approval of others, it's going to come up. You're going to feel like, oh, just... You may, it may not be in that expression. You may not go, oh, this is what it feels like to want the approval of others, and I'm not in the presence of anyone, so I'm just really not getting what I need. No, you're going to get uncomfortable. You're not going to want to do it. You're going to be restless. You're going to be... It can happen in all manner of ways. You know, giving actually is a really interesting one because that is a bit more tangible. If you want to test how you are in terms of your heart and giving, don't just give to someone in private. Give without them even knowing. Give to someone and don't even let them know who, where the gift came from. It's a great test. That's essentially what Jesus is saying. Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, or the other way around. He's giving you ways and means to actually, it's a grace to test your heart. So when you come into the quiet place for prayer, if you're looking for the approval of others, then you're going to find that actually you're going to, it's not going to sit well with you. You're going to be wanting to find that place. Or you're going to come in and every time you have a prayer meeting, you're going to feel like you have to be the one shouting out the prayer the longest, whatever. The second thing that will happen is that you'll quickly not want to do it. Your motivation will suddenly die off and it will not be sustainable. And that's when you realise, oh, I wasn't praying to commune with God. I was praying just to look the part. And this is why the word is a bit confronting 
Because the first thing it does, it exposes you to all the things that you're not. And it's never pleasant. But if you lose sight of the goal that God has for you, then what that will do to you is really just drive you into a place of despair because you think you're never worthy. You're not valued by God. You don't deserve to be in his presence. And the reality is we don't, and yet by his grace, he calls us sons and daughters. He says we belong. He predestined us before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him, that we'd be sons of God, that we would belong. So there's this really strange paradox in the Christian faith in this present life where we have to come to terms with our sin and our poverty of spirit and yet at the same time hold the fact that even though we were dead in our transgressions, our sins, God raised us from the dead out of his riches and mercy and seated us with him in the heavenly places. In other words, he has spiritually taken us into the place of authority that Christ also holds and what a glory and a magnificence that is. They literally are polar opposites. They are east and west. They are north and south. They are so far separated from one another that it's actually hard to understand how we have to hold this together, and yet we do. We have to come before God and realise that we are poor in spirit, and that's when he says to you, that's okay, yours is the kingdom. The kingdom is yours. All that... The kingdom of God is yours when you come to the end of yourself. Flip that around. If you don't come to the end of yourself, you'll never get there. If you don't come to the end of trying to find your identity in other people, you will never get there. If you don't come to the end of wanting to get praised by others, rather than having the God of the universe define who you are and lavish his love upon you, you will never get into the kingdom of God. That's why doing the word, doing what Jesus says, the simple instructions that he gives, test your heart, go into the quiet place, meet me there. Because what is prayer and fellowship after all? What is it? It's that deep communion with the God of the universe. It's a living reality of meeting with the one who's created you. It's not a place of petition and request. It's not like writing down your Christmas wish list and submitting it to the God of the sky that you might receive all that you're after. It's actually a deep, profound communion with another living being, if I can put it that way. And so you can see how it's not just an indictment. <laughs> um, like to, to come into prayer, into the place of that holy communion with God and spend all your time looking for the approval of others is, I don't even know what word to describe just how defiling that is. To be in the presence of God and actually ignore him and think it's more important to get the praises of others. I'm actually really struggling to find a word that describes just how terrible that is. I don't know how, you can tell, I don't know how to put it into words. It's this majesty, this glory of the one who is high and lifted up, who enthrones in the heavens. He comes and dwells with the contrite 
and lowly of spirit, he restores and redeems creation, even in despite of ourselves. His magnificence is beyond description and we're coming into prayer and fellowship and looking for the approval of men. It just shows you how deceptive the heart can be to think that the opinions of others can be far more important than the opinion of God. Why is it important? Well, there's probably many reasons why it's, it's good to actually go to that place and test your heart and he talks about it over the page. He says, "No one who says to me, Lord, Lord, will ever. No one who says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast demons out in your name and do mighty, mighty works for your name? These guys." are operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's talking about the last days. So it's not just about Pentecost. He's saying, these people are prophesying, they're casting out demons, they're doing mighty works. And here's what Jesus says to them. I declare to you, I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That to me is terrifying. It ought to put in you, if it's not stirring in you a reverence and a fear of the holy God, maybe we need to take a pulse. <laughs> we need to see if the heart's still beating because this is the reality, to come and do things in the name of the Lord, pretending that you're doing it in the name of the Lord, but to doing it for your own self-gain, for your own self-purpose, is such an indictment that when you come to the end of your days and you stand before the Lord, he says, depart from me, I never knew you which tells you that prayer is not about getting anything or the approval of others. Actually, Jesus is longing to know you. Before you bring your petitions, he knows what you need. He knows what demands you have. It's not that we don't ask for them, but he's actually wanting to meet with you. He wants to abide with his people. So that's the terrifying, the, the arrest, the... I just want to flip this around and talk a little bit about the reward because one could argue that this word can be a little heavy. But the beautiful thing about what Jesus has done for us is that when we do what he says, he says, your father will see you and you will be rewarded. Now... That reward can come in many ways. The, the first one we know is parked in eternity. And First Peter says, even though you're going through your various trials, these trials are sent so that they test the genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, which perishes though it is tested by fire, so that you may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The outcome of our faith is not the blessed life now. It's not that God cannot bless your life now. But actually... The blessing begins with knowing that our souls are parked in heaven 
And when we actually get through this life, we know that eternal salvation awaits and we can enter into the fullness of the glory of God and in his presence with joy forevermore and knowing that every tear is wiped away, every pain and suffering is washed, it's gone, and there is an existence with our Creator where he comes down on earth and he says, you are my people and I will be your God. And he abides in the fullness of his presence with us all. It's worth going to Revelation 21 and just meditating on that picture of that Jerusalem city coming down and reading those words and getting that into your heart because that's the eternal destination of everyone who confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. That this life and the pain and the suffering that we experience is not the end of things. It's actually quite temporary. And as Paul puts it, the momentary afflictions that he suffers are not anything to be compared. They are light. They are momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory that awaits. So when you continue to... The reason this is important to understand is that the testing of your faith, the testing of your heart, the testing of these things brings you the assurance that as you are cleansed from your sin, as you repent from these things, it gives you that assurance of eternal salvation. I know some people might struggle with that. How do I know? Well, you know by actually knowing him. And when you know him, you know that you'll be present with him forever. But there are other rewards along the way. How many of you would like to live with an abiding peace? Knowing that all your anxieties and fears are just gone? Philippians 4. Anyone who's anxious with anything, come to me with prayer and petition and thanksgiving. And the peace of God which transcends human understanding, right? You're going to experience something in that place where you will not understand it and yet it will guard your mind and heart in Christ Jesus. This peace of God will come upon you. And it is so confounding that if you're in a place where people are witnessing you're going through a struggle, a trial, and yet you have an aura of peace and rest, they're going to be confused because you're not conforming to the reality of the things that are seen, but you're conforming to the reality of things that are unseen, the peace of God in your presence. He says, if you're worried about what you'll eat and drink and what you'll wear, put that aside and focus on the kingdom of God seek me first and I'll make sure that all these other things are added to you these promises are not like abstract kind of just wishful thinking they are present realities that you can walk in and experience by going to the quiet place getting his word and ask him to open up your eyes to these things that your heart may receive it He can wash away your sins. Somewhere in Isaiah, he says, Come, reason with me. Though your skins are like scarlet, I'll make them white as snow. Though they are crimson, I'll make them like wool. I will separate them from the east and the west. Just come. Just come to Jesus and all that burdens you, that wears you down. He says, just give it to me. 
and I'll give you a burden that's light and easy and I'll bring you into rest. So many rewards that are at the foot of Jesus. So many times that we forget that actually He is present and real and can transform our reality. But not without dealing with our heart first. I have loved the way the Lord has loved me. Because even in my trials and my anxieties and my fears and my angers and my frustrations, He has never left me nor forsaken me. He has always been with me. Though I pass through the waters, they will not overwhelm me. Though I go through the fire, it will not consume me. For the Lord my God is with me. If you do not know the Lord like that, go home, get in your closet. And confess, Lord, I want to know you in my heart like that. Because it is not a gift for the few, it is a gift for anyone who chooses to seek him. With all their heart, with all their mind, all their soul, all their strength, and he will come to you. It's a promise, not from me, but from God who has given it in his word. It doesn't mean we can't pray out loud corporately doesn't mean we can't jump up and down and worship God in the fullness of all of our expressions. It doesn't mean go away and set a law and judge everyone by, <laughs> by whether or not they're praying publicly or not. That's not it at all. It's actually saying, check your own heart and here's a way to do it because if you do, there are great rewards for you. There is nothing more precious than the presence of God. To have Him present in your life. And I pray that you would actually seek that out for yourselves. And if you do it, we don't have to sing songs of revival. We don't have to shout about it and write about it. It will happen. It will just happen. Because if it happens in you, and it happens in you, if it happens in you, and if you're doing it, if it's happening in you, you bring us together, what happens? <laughs> revival. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's all the trauma and the joy of coming before you, the tremors of holiness and yet the joys of your presence. There is no one like you, Lord. No one like you. How can we possibly seek the approval of others or do things rewards that are so little when you stand before us with the kingdom of heaven awaiting us if we would just turn to you Lord I pray for everyone in here that you would awaken their hearts to know of your presence that you would bless them with the life of the word in your scriptures that when they come to you in humility that you would respond to them Lord let them know that you are with them. For anyone who needs forgiveness, I pray, Lord, as they confess to you, I declare to you in the name of Jesus that as you confess, you are forgiven your sin. And he remembers it no more. So stop bringing it up. You can stop doing it. 
For the Lord separated as far as the east is from the west. He releases you from the shame and the guilt of your sin. And he allows you to stand before him in holiness because he clothes you in robes of righteousness. And he fills you with the presence. And he says, you are my beloved. whom I am well pleased. Come into the kingdom. Receive me and you will receive my kingdom forevermore. Amen.